here we go with part three of what I think both John and I will agree will, will be a, a four-part series. Uh, and John Kenneth Muir is with us. Uh, again, if you've heard the first two shows, you know what's going on here. We're looking at Millennium. And now we're heading into uh, the third season. And I have to admit, um, I've watched this three times now. And um, i got to say, you're not going to come away with too much hope in a sense. I think it's great drama. But uh, you're not going to walk away laughing uh, to the gumball machine. So, John, uh, thanks for coming on. And I mean, w- you know, what's your thoughts about it? I mean, you, you've seen it now from, from I, I guess, at least twice around. Right. And, well, you, you tell me, I mean, what do you come away with after the third season? Well, um, that's, that's a good question. I think that, uh, you know, in, in the third season we, we see Frank uh, again um, – Sort of at his lowest, you know. Right yep. before the series began, he had had a nervous breakdown, and he, as the series began, he was sort of escaping to Seattle with his um, his wife and little daughter, and going to live in his yellow house. Um, as the third se- season opens, his his yellow house is far away. He's relocated to Washington. His wife is passed. She died in a in a plague, an engineered plague. Um, and we see psychiatric tapes of Frank, and he says this time he doesn't even know if he wants to get better. That's how low he is. He, you know, right. he, he's, he, he's just totally lost. And uh, he returns to work at the FBI, and, and really what the season entails uh, is Frank Black's clashing with his former associates in the Millennium Group. I mean, I, I think uh, certainly in terms of what we know, what knowledge we share with Frank, um, we know that the Millennium Group is absolutely uh, evil, uh, and that the things they've done are absolutely terrible. Um, and, and, and the third season, you know, if you look at the arc of, of Millennium in the first season, the Millennium Group, they were, I think as you call them, they were the, you know, the White Hats. We thought they were the good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they become very ambiguous uh, in the second season um, until at the end of the second season when they unloose the plague, the Marburg variant uh, in Seattle. Then we know that they're bad. And, and certainly in the third season, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that they're bad. So we, we've seen them, you know, it, it's actually very, it, it, it's actually a very interesting comment, I think, about, um, uh, about groups and, and and about sort of like the the more you learn the less you like about you know certain mm-hmm. facets of things is that you start out seeing the people you're with in a very idealized almost uh, you know it's almost like uh, you know the illusion of romance you know all these people are wonderful you know, as you get to know them a little bit you think well no they're not really so wonderful they have these qualities that I don't like uh, and then you know sometimes in some situations you get to it and you realize okay I've really gotten myself into a pickle here because these are you know these are not my people. Um, and that, that's Frank's journey. And I, I think what you leave with in the third season um, is that Frank has probably done as much as he can do, um, you know, at least at that stage where he is. And the, the end of the series uh, focuses on him and uh, Jordan, his little daughter, uh, r- running away, basically. Going, you, know, you get the feeling they're going into hiding. Um, and, and you can't blame them for everything they've been through. Um, you know, it, it's... You know, I don't know exactly how to say it because I don't want to indicate anything unheroic. You know, Frank is a hero. You know, he he was there at the front lines fighting this thing. But at some point, and I really, really identify with this, he says, okay, you know what, I'm taking my daughter's hand because, you know, I I can help her and focus on her and we're going. You know, he, 
he, he shrinks his world to where it's prote about protecting her at the end to some extent. You know, I, I would say this, um, and I say this, and I mean this to be um, uh, kudos, and that is he played a suffering heroic figure that I have not seen the likes of since David Jansen played in the TV series The Fugitive. Right. I mean, you looked at the guy's face. I mean, Jansen was just pain, but somehow, some way, despite all that he was going through, he reached deep down inside and pulled out some humanity. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, my life, like, like when he helped somebody out, it was like almost like Jansen saying, you know, you don't know how much my life sucks. Right. But right. he found a humanity to do something good and right. then went on. But I, I think about Jansen because the both of them have these expressions that are so realistic, and I think they both did great acting jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, with this, like I said, there's no other way to put it, but they're pained. Um, they were above it all to a certain degree. I think they probably would like to end their existence, but in one sense, I think uh, with um, Frank uh, Jordan was his driving wheel, with David Jansen as the, uh, you know, the doctor that was um, um, convicted of a murder he did not commit. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, and what kept him going was exoneration. So exoneration for um, David Jansen and, and the fugitive um, Jordan for Frank. Right. I think in in uh, Millennium. Well, I think Frank suffered has suffered more than probably anybody should ever suffer. I mean, if you think about what he's done, he's he's you know he he, he spent his life um, uh, putting away you know these horrible criminals. But, but the cost has sort of been his innocence. Um, and then the things that brought him happiness, he sort of lost a piece at a time. Um, and he, even in the third season, you know, it's, um, I, you know, in some senses I look at the third season as uh, the last temptation of Emma Hollis. Um, you know, his new partner, his, uh, you know, this very, um, this very vivacious but, but innocent uh, sort of you know, wet behind the ears, green FBI agent who who you just know is smart and wonderful. And in, in the early episodes, you see that she has the same kind of good instincts that Frank has. They just haven't been honed yet. Um, you know, and, and Frank very much takes her under his wing um, in the season. But ultimately, he loses her to the Millennium Group. Um, you know, ultimately, she she goes the wrong way and. I find that enormously affecting. You know, Emma is almost uh, uh, like a, a daughter to, to Frank in this season, you know, as much as Jordan is, and he loses her. Um, so I, I thought it was very, very interesting um, looking at, you know, the paternal aspects of this season with Frank with this young associate and Frank with Jordan. And, and at the end, he, he takes Jordan and to, to go and save her, um, but, he you know, he couldn't rescue Emma, uh, really. Um, you know, she had her own demons that uh, that that he couldn't uh, that he couldn't conquer. Uh, they had to do with her father and sure. the Millennium Group offering a cure for his Alzheimer's, and of course you can't you can't blame her for that. But um, you know, ultimately she's taken in uh, and becomes part of the conspiracy. And I, and I think there is something there um, about the the corruption of the innocent. I see a lot of uh, Millennium season three being about the corruption of the innocent. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, and, and sort of how even people with the best intentions, life, life 
you know, life comes at you hard, and you know, you're left with a choice, and there are no good choices. You know, you want your you want your father to be better. You know, who who wouldn't make that sort of Faustian bargain, right? To to sure. help somebody they yeah. love. Oh yeah. Oh no, and I think what happens here, and in the when people chirp about, uh, well, it's conspiracy. How come you know we don't know about it? I think this is a great example of why, and that is, uh, people are given, as you said, a Faustian um, deal, and they take it, or they risk ruination. But what happens usually is that, yeah, they they do fall like Emma did, because right. of her dad, and she shuts up, and so what the corruption continues. Mm-hmm. And um, I would extrapolate that and say, folks, if you're wondering why um, conspiracies continue and why they're so demonized, it's because they do exist and the conspirators want you to think that they are, in fact, not there. But I, I also want to get back to something, too, when you said about uh, corrupting innocence, because, and I don't know how many uh, shows you uh, detailed, but I think one of them is probably, I'm going to just guess, Antipas. Yes, yeah, Lucy, the, the final piece of the Lucy Butler trilogy, right? Heavy stuff in there, and also he says, Frank says this, and I'm not so sure that that's true. Uh, I want it to be, but I don't believe it ever proves out to be such, and that is you can't corrupt innocence. Right. He makes that statement. But anyway, I'm going to leave that, because if we're going to do this uh, somewhat linearly, um, shall we go back? Uh, and let me ask you this. Uh, do you want to have, or if you, well, you're definitely going to have first dibs, uh, what what uh, shows you might want to isolate uh, that epitomize what that third season was all about? Well, I think um, I do. You know, I want to start at the beginning because I, I happen to absolutely love the opening two-parter of the show. Um, it's the it's the innocence um, and I don't know if I pronounced it right. Exegesis, I guess is how you say it. Exegesis, you got it. And, and it's about. Um, it, you know, it, it is a follow-up to what happened at the end of the second season, but sort of an oblique follow-up. We're, we're, we're following up on what happened in Seattle and the Millennium Group being behind it, but we come at a different angle. And, and what the story involves is basically remote viewers, the CIA program called Grill Flame, about these women who would sit in a room and with their, you know, basically insight and psychic ability be able to, you know, they said actually like go into Russian bases mentally and, you know, detail Russian technology, things like that. And I found this story fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, in particular, it focused on this one woman who was sort of the best of the Sears named 512. I thought it was fascinating because, I, again, I felt it was Millennium's oblique answer to the question that, that we, we sort of talked a little bit about last time. Remember when there was a, an earthquake and Frank said, how did you know to predict, how did you know to predict the earthquake but the Millennium Group predicted it? And they keep coming back with predictions that are right. right. Well, here we kind of see what the mechanism is, is that for a time the Millennium Group was obviously controlling these seers, um, these remote viewers, and that that's how they were privy to certain information. Uh, so I thought that was kind of a nifty and, and neat answer to, um, to, ha- to how they're able to do that. But um, the story involved basically the Millennium Group's purge of, of, of these people. Um, they want them all dead, um, I guess because now they've known what the Millennium Group has done with releasing the Marburg variant, that plague. Um, and, you know, I just loved that Frank, in his voiceover narrations, tied... Um, these 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 seers, these these uh, remote viewers, back to people like Cassandra in ancient Greece, other seers throughout history, you know, legendary, you know, mythology, mythological and such. I thought that was great because you know it works on so many levels. It's not only sort of um, 
uh, about, you know, these are all female, you know, sort of, is it, is it a little bit about female domination? It's a little, you know, or women being dominated by, you know, uh, male-centric cultures. It's a little bit about um, cultures, you know, constantly choosing war and negative things, and that's all they want to see. You know, Frank makes a comment about, you know, like, what does the enemy have? That's what, that's what they want to know about the future. What does the enemy have? You know, when is the end of the world coming? It's all negative, scary stuff. Um it's just very interesting. I mean, and, you know, all, all that aside, that episode also, um, again, you got to ask, you know, what, what is Frank, what does um, Chris Carter know? But, I mean, the, the episode opens with um, uh, an instance of uh, airline terrorism, basically. Again, this was 1998. Um, we know from The Lone Gunman um, that there was an episode that about the... the, the, the um, the 9-11 attack, basically, the tw- Twin Towers attack by planes. There was this example of airline terrorism. Uh, and, you know, there's one in the X-Files as well. It's just, it's just very interesting. That seems to be something that his series keep coming back to. And, and, you know, only three years after this, of course, we had those terrible attacks. So, um, you know, I, I, I love that two-parter. I think, I think it's very powerful. And, you know, that's kind of classic, in a sense, uh, in, in the, uh, the style of uh, Greek tragedies. Uh, when you have... Uh, you know the chorus or the oracles or whatever, and right. uh, and that was that was present obviously in that show as well. It, it was very beautiful too. I thought yeah. it was um, mm-hmm. uh, the the way that the the oracles would um, that they would sort of uh, butterflies would sort of congregate to them. It, it, you know, it, it had a sort of lyrical and poetic angle too. Um, I mean, as well as a you know an extremely uh, destructive angle because that that's the episode that introduces us to a character we see. Um, recurring in Millennium in the third season, who it, at first we just think he's a killer. His name is Mabius, and he and he he's amongst the people killing the oracles. He's a he's a hired, uh, I guess, Millennium group it's, killer. It's but but as the season goes on, we learn that he. I mean, he has you know powers beyond what mortals seem to have, and and you start to wonder if he's you know in the league with uh, Lucy Butler. You know, he seems to be able to change his shape and do other things as well. Um, so, so, I mean, not only do we know that the Millennium Group is pursuing nefarious human ends, but we know that they've also employed in the third season, you know, some sort of supernatural evil, which is, which is interesting. All right, let me ask you about that, too, because um, watching it, it, something struck me I had not seen before. There was a character in there that just, in, uh, I, only in the third season, I think especially towards the end of that third season, there was a character that was somewhat... Frank Black looking, but it wasn't Frank, and uh, he pops up a couple of times, and I believe he was a shapeshifter. Yep, that's Mabius. That's okay, right. That is the one. All right. That's the one. Right. And you know, it's funny because I, I think I think I've watched the show three or four times all the way through, but it always surprised. I, I always think, oh, he did end up appearing in some of the later episodes. Um, that this character like of the third season but when i went back and watched the third season this time he was right there in the first one and then i watched another and he was right there too and it's funny a lot of times he doesn't have dialogue a lot of times he's just sitting in a car you know and, it, and it's almost like a throwaway and and then and it's like then you watch him and you're like oh my gosh there's that guy again yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's, and uh, frank had a, a shootout or something um in one of the latter shows and he got away Right. He went out through a window and he walked. He he ran away and you could see like he had a little ball spot in the top of his head. And I was asking my wife, I'm going, that's the guy. So he he, he there's not much said about him. In fact, there's nothing really said about him nope. in a sense. Uh, and of course, that name also is a rip on. I think what um, 
uh, Nostradamus apparently talks about with Mavis. So, oh, okay. So here we have Mavius. Well, I tell you, he 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 he's interesting because yeah. he 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 ties the. He ties the two examples of evil that we get in Millennium together. Um, in, in, that, in that Millennium, we've, all, we've, we've seen human evil in the form of the serial killers. We've also seen inhuman evil uh, in, in terms of these demons that appear periodically. And, and in the third season, what we get are those two evils you know, working hand in hand, uh, you know, which is, you know, very troublesome. But, but it makes sense if you think that, you know, where the show was leading was the end of the world. You know, at yep. the end of the world comes closer, you know, evil coalesces, right? You know, it's, well, so it would have been point. interesting. That's a good to, point, um, that you said evil coalesces, because uh, I just sent an email to somebody saying, when you, get to, when you get to the end, or when you're nearing the end of some kind of epoch, it's like almost everything gets unhinged. Right, and I really mean that in a real sense too. I mean, with civilization, the past uh, eras or periods, whatever you want to call them, epochs, uh, things start to get they start to spin a lot crazier at, at near the end. But let right. me ask you this: Did you do anything with um, in that first season that um, uh, the Tio Tuaki, the end of the world as we know it? Yes, yes, that was one of the ones I put down for a couple of reasons because sp- specifically that was forecasting the Y2K disaster. It was about a computer bug that, you know, on the eve of the millennium was going to, you know, not flip over to the 21st century. You know, all computers would crash. And it was about these, um, you know, people who were making plans to go out to a compound with a generator and they had lots of guns, you know, and they were going to go live, you know, and protect themselves from, you know, the downfall of civilization. Um, but I, I also wrote it down because I thought it, I felt that it it came into the um, that theme of corruption of the innocent again because it's about this young kid uh, who does, it, he's involved in a school shooting um, right. and you know not only do, it, do you think of what was going on at the end of the nineties like um, Columbine but but the idea here of he had nothing to live for. Uh, he he felt you know again the, the corruption of the innocent was different this time. The, 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 this time it was like the parents who were supposed to you know really lead you by example. You know they they were not able to instill in him any kind of hope or belief in the future. You know all they were feeding him was this um, Y two K end of the world stuff to where you know life didn't matter to him anymore. Um, I think that's a very powerful story. Well, that you know you would have somebody so young actually become a nihilist. Right, because of what the, what the folks were doing, and what's interesting to me too is it, well it is um, two things. One, uh, the millennium does not end at two thousand; it ends at the end of two thousand into two thousand one. Right now, for the computer purposes, everybody freaked out when the last two digits turned to zero zero. Right, but the end of the millennium and the beginning of a new one cannot happen until January first, two thousand one. Right, that's right. I mean, so, I don't know what the, I mean, I, I, first of all, the Y2K thing, uh, obviously they freaked us out, they hyped us, and, and it was nothing. Right. Uh, but also, as far as anything that might be metaphysical, uh, the millennium does not end, obviously, at uh, 1999. It ends at the end of 2000, so even that was pumped up a little bit, and I was a little surprised and I guess they might have been capitalizing it to a certain extent, that Carter, who I probably think knows better, knew that nothing really was going to happen at the end of 99, but it did freak everybody out. And I don't know, and and if you don't mind sharing with me, I'll tell you what, I expected things to go catawankas. (laughs) I I did too. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't do anything special about it. I figured, okay, I gassed up the car. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, around I, Christmas time. <laughs> I stockpiled food. Okay. I did. All right. I stock. I stockpiled food. I did. I, I, uh, I, I just made sure we had enough food to okay. to last. Um, you know, I did. I didn't. Uh, you know, do a run on the bank or anything like that. But I, I did make sure we had enough food if for a couple of days there was chaos. I mean, certainly, um, there were a lot of people who were worried about. It. I mean, I, I had a, uh, I have a family member um, who shall remain nameless who talked to me about it as early as '96 about he, he was in a big New York company and he was freaking out in in nineteen ninety six talking about it that there was this big thing coming that there was going to be, you know, this sort of technological um, you know, disaster coming because computers weren't going to be able to handle it. And you know, he detailed it for me, you know, in um, you know, extreme detail, like all the things that would fail. You know, imagine every system, you know, and you know uh, you know, nuclear power plants and electricity plants and, you know, water purifying plants and, you know, you know just everything. You know, your ATM card won't work. You know, you won't be able to use credit. You, you know, it, it just, you know, everything was going to be taken down by this. So, I mean, I remember hearing about it as early as 96. And, um, you know, it, it seems like that episode is perfectly in tune with what Millennium endeavors to do, which is to basically hold up for us all these different examples of, you know, this is, you know, it, this is how the world could end. You know, we, we've had Native American prophecy in the second season in an episode called The Single Blade of Grass. Remember, we had the, the, the Noah's Ark flood prophecy of um, in the first season in Force Majeure. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've had all of these different kinds of things, you know, and I think Millennium is always very interested in you know how does how do how do people think the world is going to end? I think that's that's one of its recurring themes. And so e- e- even though I agree with you, you know, there were, it wasn't really um, the millennium. It was it was something that was out there right. and and that they could seize on and tell a really interesting story about. I think. I actually I was on the road when this happened. Um, I was in a you know, I live in Florida. I was in Jersey on my way to Vermont, and um, I was watching uh, sleepily all the celebrations that night, and I'm like, dudes, it's not the millennium, it's next year. But anyway, <laughs> who am I? Uh, do you want to go on to hit, uh, you know, some of the shows that um, that you've outlined? Yes, one of the one of the ones that I absolutely love, it's one, it's one of my all-time favorite episodes of Millennium, it's called Skull and Bones. Yeah. Um, and, and this is basically the episode where Emma and Frank, working on different ends of the case, sort of uncover... Uh, the Millennium Group Killing Field. I mean, I don't know what else to call it. It's a, it's a vast yeah. burial ground, you know, where, where they've gotten rid of, you know, for 15... people, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, a lot a lot of people they don't like, and, you know, one of them turns out to be somebody that Frank knew, uh, Cheryl Andrews, a... Uh, a um, she was, uh, yeah, she was a black... Um, right. Medical examiner. Yes, medical examiner. That's it. That's what she was. And he finds out that, she, you know, she came to a negative end here. Um, and the thing that I, lo- I love about the episode, again, it's almost these sort of throwaway details that you think, oh, you know, they were really building this great, these great connections and this great mythology. Um, Frank goes to see this man who is not entirely like, unlike Frank, except he's a little sort of 
nuttier, but um, but he he has insight into the world too. He's able to like look around and read newspaper headlines, and then he's able to 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 put together details sort of under the surface. Like he'll read about a disappearance in a newspaper. He'll know it was the Millennium Group. He'll know what that person had to do with the Millennium Group, and, and he's able to sort of tie it all together. It's like Frank. He doesn't see inside the mind of a killer, but he's able to have insight into why certain people disappear. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. But what I loved, the little touch that I loved, is that outside that man's apartment, uh, on a um, on, on a sort of like retaining wall, just this throwaway thing, you saw the symbol of the remote viewers there, the eye the that you saw in that episode, the innocence. Uh, that's great. You know, they're they're tying together. You know, these things. You know, it, it, it's all forming a larger picture. Um, you know, I, I just you know again maybe it appears in that episode. Um, you know to you know, the, the Millennium Group is not happy. Peter Watts is sent there to sort of throw a monkey wrench into the investigation to stop them from, you know, f- finding out that the Millennium Group is involved. But it, it, it's, it's one of my uh, favorite episodes of Millennium because um, it's just the idea of, of, of sort of this man who has, you know, who society looks upon as a crackpot, basically, but he's put together literally chapter and verse, you know, uh, bookshelves full of journals about uh, about the Millennium Group and what it's done for 15 years. And you know, I, 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 as a writer, um, as somebody who organizes information, I just really, I was just really digging that idea. And when I watched with my wife, I said to Catherine, I said to her, I said, you know, honey, I said, I know this is ridiculous because I know it's just fiction, but you know what, I wouldn't do to read those journals. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it would just, it would just be amazing. I know they don't really exist. I know the Millennium Group doesn't really exist, but I would just. Love to be uh, looking at that, John. Yes, they are real. <laughs> right, uh, the I, journals I, are real. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, <laughs> I always like. I, our subcommittee was talking about uh, children's uh, books uh, that wouldn't make it, and one of the titles are "Your Nightmares Are Real." <laughs> you know, there was somebody under your bed. Um, but I, I tell you, if you take a look too at that um, at that eye. Uh, I will tell you straight out that that is somewhat of a uh, abbreviated uh, rendering of the Eye of Horus, which is extremely occult. Right. And I'll send you something along those lines, and you'll see what I mean. But that eye, as thinly as it was drawn, was not just uh, spray-painted up there for the hell of it. Uh, it is a rendering very much, and Carter must have known it, uh, as a rendering part of what you would know as the uh, Eye of Horus, and I'll send it to you. And what's interesting also is that Pfizer Drugs has that as their logo. Oh, now that's very disturbing. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll send you both of those uh, so that I can back up what I'm telling you about, but in fact, that is the case. Um, Another thing that happened in that, which I thought was great, because the thing is, you know, you want to believe the good guys always win at the end of the day, and and, in real life it really doesn't always happen. But the one thing that Frank said, and of course you know that he's always fatigued, and he's up against great odds, and he always has, you know, these, and of course in, in the third season, he's kind of like laid on with all these kind of nasty types like Baldwin, you know what I mean? Right. And Box and stuff. But anyway, uh, he did say something in that show. He goes, the truth does matter. Right. And I took that as even if you can't, you know, storm against the machine, uh, that you know the truth does matter. And that's what I took away from it. And I just thought that that was, you know, it may, it may not seem like, you know, a lot to you and that'd be okay. But it just dinged on my ears. It's like, yeah, you're right. I mean, 
know what's going on. What you can do about it is arguable, but right. do you want to know the truth? And if you do, yeah, it does matter, and, and that's what Frank uttered in that uh, show. No, I, I think that's true, and you know, I think those words are even more important today, you know, than they were uh, when Millennium was on, because you know, a lot of what uh, mainstream news has done today is to say, okay, here's a story, and they put up somebody from the right and somebody to le- from the left, and, and, you know, they both argue, you know, and yell about, you know, their side of the story, but, you know, it's really the responsibility of journalists to say, you know what, this is true. What that one person is saying on either side could be total BS. You know, I know it's doing that. You know, the truth does matter. Mm-hmm. There are some things that, you know, you can't, you you can't just look through a, an ideological lens at you know the truth does matter and you know, that's what I love about Frank he's he's somebody who is a uh, uh, you know he he understands that he he he's not um, he's not distracted by pet side shows like that uh, you know he's an empath and um, it, it, in fact he's so controlled I mean so in control of himself. That when he finally freaks out and does this like SWAT team invasion of Peter Watts's house, right? I was like, "Go, Frank!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, whoop him upside his bad head. Right. But, but talking about Peter Watt too, because what bothered me about Peter Watt, you know, he's trying to show himself as somebody apart from the uh, Millennium Group. That's a good guy. Right. And yet, if you're a good guy, you don't hold certain things hostage. And what I thought was very inhumane was for him to lean on Emma saying, if you will do this, if you will take this office, then we will cure your father. And it's like, dude, if you're a good guy, you cure the father. And then right. you make the offer to her, and she takes it, she doesn't. So, you know, Pete, so Peter Watts, although he's trying to tell Frank, you know, I'm apart from these guys, this Millennium Group started well and, and you know, worked out badly. Right. What is your take? Do you believe that Watts really was uh, conflicted, or do you believe that he was always a skunk with his rat little mustache? <laughs> well, you know, I actually, I think he started out as somebody who was very idealistic, who who really believed in the system, and then he, he, he encountered so much terrible sort of human ugliness in, in, in whatever his profession was, in the FBI or the police, whatever it was, that he began to become an ends-justify-the-means person, and you know, that's a slippery slope. Yeah, it, is. It, is. <laughs> it, it, it really is. Um, you know, I understand why people make that case, but it, it's almost never a good case to make because where you are at the end is somebody then who has hold, held on to nothing except the result. You know, uh, all, all you've gotten is a result. Uh, you, ha- you haven't held on to your beliefs, your your, your core values. All, all you've done is said, "I won." Um, you know, and I think. That as the series went on, Peter was asked to do more and more grave and disreputable things, um, you know, and yet didn't justify the means. And I think that's what the last episode is about. I mean, I think at some point he realized what he had become, and that's why he left those files for Frank about Frank and his daughter. Okay. I I think that was his way of seeking expiation. <laughs> yeah, forgiveness. I I think so. Some some form of redemption. Um, you know, I, I really do. I, I don't, you know, I, I, Peter does despicable things, and there's no doubt he's a fun in season three, but I just, I, I feel like, you know, like so many real people, that you, you start out on the path of good, and then, you know, something happens, and you take a wrong turn, and then you go down that path. 
Let's see, uh, did, I, did I lose you there for a minute? Oh, uh, we had a little fuzziness there, so go ahead. Yeah, that was, sorry about that. No see, problem. someone's trying to stop us from communicating about it. <laughs> oh, it's a millennium group. That's right. No, no. No, but I really do. I think he, he took a wrong turn and went so far down the path um, that, that ultimately he couldn't come back. I mean, he, could, he couldn't come back and stay alive. That was abundantly clear. Um, he, he could come back with a final gracious act for somebody who was decent to him. Um, but, uh, no, well, but, you know, I just thought, uh, like I was saying to my wife, I'm like, okay, let's look at this uh, in terms of human behavior. A guy that's that's um, a good guy does not go up to somebody and say, look, you know, and, and I said this, if you'll do this, if you'll take over for that retiring individual whose name escapes me. Right, McLaren, um, right. Who, what was his name? Uh, McLaren, I think Andy McLaren. Yeah, with the, uh, the, the bad hair. <laughs> the, uh, the Don Rickles... Uh, Home up from your armpit kind of haircut. Um, you know, you don't do that. I mean, if, if you if you care at all, if you really, really care, you save the person, and then you take a look at Emma and you go, okay, look, we, we saved your dad. He's okay. Can we talk? That didn't happen. Right. It was a, if you do this, then this will happen, and that's not a good guy. No. So to me, it was like the Millennium Group had him by the short hairs, too, and told him, you know, go out and do this, and maybe we'll save your ass. Right. And right. at the end, we really don't know which way he fell, except it looked like he came clean at gunpoint right. when Frank invades the house. But in the end, you know, to me, he's almost even more loathsome because be one thing or the other, but don't be lukewarm. <laughs> you know, for, for me, the thing that just makes me identify with him is that story he told Frank in the second season about the, the baby and the, the canister and, and, and sort of what that did to him. And I think, you know... It, for that, that rested so hard and so difficult, you know, it was so terrible for him on his psyche that at some point he must have been, you know, a more fully uh, moral person than, you know, what he ultimately became. Uh, you know, and I, I just remember that, that I remember he started out, he, you know, he, he started out, you know, uh, as a good person, I think yeah. just took a, a real twisted road. I mean, I agree with you. What he did with Emma was was terrible, and and he, yeah. he but but I think he knew. I mean, you know, I think what makes him such a powerful character is, I, is I do think that he did all of these terrible things, but and the ends justify. You know, thinking that the ends justify the means, but in in the end, they didn't. No. You know, they did not. I mean, that's great. I mean, it's it, it's a tragic almost. I mean, could, you know, if Millennium had gone on longer, it would have been really interesting to see an episode like where they took some of the events from previous episodes, but they told them from Peter Watt's view. I would love to have a little more insight into, you know, how how he viewed those things. Um, You know, personally, I find that actor, I think Terry O'Quinn is a wonderful actor. um, I I just find morally ambiguous characters like that fascinating. (laughs) Well, they are, and that's exactly what he was. Like, in the end, you know, I thought to myself, you know, you are neither cold nor warm, and therefore you will be spat out if you would. And I think he lost himself because he got himself caught in this, and although he wanted to go the way... And and if we could say that his leaving the two files, one on Jordan, one on Frank, was an expiation, whatever right. he did or wherever he went, uh, we might you know even think that he might have disappeared. Yeah. And he just said, because he even told Frank, he goes, I'll only give you this if you really need it. It's like, well, dude, if this guy is somebody you care about, you give yeah. him the info. Again, it was one of these if-then deals like he gave with Emma. And I'm like, not cool. But no. You know, so anyway, he, he does what he does, he is what he is, if he goes off, you know, with the sins of mankind with him and jumps off a cliff, we don't really know, 
but at least it shows something positive in the end with with uh, with uh, Watts leading the two files for Frank. I, I think so, too. And I think he's also very interesting as a counterpoint to Frank. You know, Frank, you know, for Frank, the truth does matter. And But, but also, you know, he has that wonderful speech in um, the season two episode, um, Monster, where he's been accused of molesting children or abusing children. And he says to the mother of, of the accuser, he says, you know, when, when I saw my child born, you know, and he talks about what a beautiful moment it was. But more than that, what he says is, you know, every time I go out and hunt one of these people, what I remember was that they were a child like that once. You know, he, he, yeah. he, Frank is a very sort of whole person, yes, moral, yes. you know, and, and Peter is not. And, you know, Peter can never be Frank. You know, Peter can never be or do what Frank does because he doesn't have that moral wholeness to him that Frank does, I, I think. Um, and, you know, so, some attempt, you know, maybe it was Peter's attempt, you know, at the end, giving him those files to say to Frank, you know, I know. Uh, you were better than me, and you were right, you know? I, I, I think that they would have loved to have had Frank be the profiler he was, but um, not with the conscience and the humanity that he had, because it just made it very tacky. And, right. And, of course, he wasn't, he, he wasn't at all uh, approachable or um, um, viable, if you will. And, right. uh, and that made it very tough for them because, the, you know, damn it, this guy's got a conscience. What a pain in the ass he is. <laughs> right. Well, well, Frank's, you know, Frank's nobility, Frank's dignity, Frank's moral rectitude, you know, exposes the gaps in Peter Watts' armor, you know? Good point. Yep. I, I, I think it really does. I think Peter Watts knows that. There are a couple times in the third season where you can see he's trying to work his sort of uh, villainous ways, you know, yep. telling Emma that, you know, some sort of fungus that from Florida, and that's where the bodies were buried. You know, he's trying to lead everybody in the wrong direction. And, you know, and when he's, he's almost exposed, you can see that look on his face. He kn knows what he is. Oh, yeah, you know, we the Aspergillus thing, remember? Yeah, that's right. The Aspergillus, that's it. And right. And like, and, yeah, okay. <laughs> right, right. And, then, and they were up in Maine during that whole thing, right? Yep, Fingus, Maine, that's right. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, do you want to go to another uh, episode? Yeah, um, another one that I thought was really uh, fascinating. Um, well, well, you know, just a couple real quick. There were, you know, we talk about sort of, you know, the the issues of of what goes on in Millennium. There was, um, we got an episode called Through a Glass Darkly, and that was sort of about the mob mentality yeah. going after someone who they thought was a murderer, but who was just sort of, in a way, maybe sort of mentally simple. Um, we saw human essence was sort of about drug addiction in, in urban settings. Um, there was an episode of collateral damage where, again, showing how Frank is, you know, somebody who's morally superior to Peter. Um, Peter Watts' daughter was kidnapped, and so Peter went to Frank to ask him to help. I mean, of all the nerve, right? And, and Frank did it, you know, and mm -hmm. you see, you know, the moral superiority, the qualities of mercy and forgiveness and, you know, proportion. Frank could have taken that on Peter, but but he he knew that wouldn't be fair to the kidnapped girl either. I mean, she wasn't responsible for what her father did, you know. And so again, you have a sort of measured, appropriate response from Frank, um, you know. And then of course, Antipas, the Lucy Butler episode, wow. where you know that's almost an omen. You remember yep. the film Omen from 1976? But it's this sort of idea of a um, a child, you know, coming up in a political family, a prominent American political family, thinking, you know, they, then what's going to happen, you know, the gateways to power will open for this child as an adult, and then where will we be? Um, 
you know, they must have known George W. Bush was coming. <laughs> well, um, you're talking about the Damien thing with the uh, that, that began with the movie Omen. Yes, Damien, right? Because remember, at the end of that, he was adopted by the American president, and the right. idea was he he would become heir to you know that uh, that legacy. Um, you know about you know, the the evil changeling. You know, in the midst of uh, powerful American, uh, you know, affluence and uh, po- political influence. Um, you know, and, and again, it was about corruption of the innocent because it was about the child. It, it, Lucy Butler getting her, you know, her claws into this child and and doing something to this child. So well, again, you see that theme of corruption of the innocent. I think. Uh, by the way, um, that movie we just saw, my wife and I, and uh, we were, we uh, we couldn't watch the end of it, and she asked me about him, going, "Well, I, I think." That gave rise to the Omen series. Uh, and what was the first one with Karen Black and Oliver? Mm. Oh, um, oh, you t- are you talking about? Um, wait, wait. Yeah, what yeah, was it? Where was the? What was the first show? I mean, the first movie that gave rise to that whole Omen thing. What, it was was it Omen? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was the Omen, and oh, then sure. there was. Um, I, I know what you're talking about. There, there's a Karen oh, Black film with Oliver Reed called Burnt Offering. That's it. But but I thought from that they sprung off. Omen and Damien and all that other stuff. Well, you know they uh, they did they did come out at around the same time. You know, they're I'm, I'm okay, not I, maybe I got that wrong, but I mean because I remember being younger and we all looked at that and it was kind of like a cult thing with us. And it's yeah. been so so far removed, but you know, of course, the kid, you know, everybody dies in it. Yep. Anyone who wants to watch the movie, sorry, but. <laughs> Oliver goes out the window and all that other stuff, and then we have the kid being let loose upon uh, the blood tide of whatever that was by William Yates. And that's going to factor into this too, by the way. Uh, Without getting too cryptic, let me bring you back to where I'm going. There was a whole lot of symbolism in that Antipas thing. Yes. I mean, you have the snake, which is in the garden, which is in the labyrinth. That that, um, What do they call those things where rich people have these um, garden walls? Those, were they like hedge mazes? I don't know exactly. Yeah, what you know, think. yeah, right, exactly. Um, labyrinths or whatever. And then the snake consumes the girl, and of course doesn't. And then you have the shape shifting also with the German shepherds. Right. And then you have that whole thing with the swans. Yes. Now I wonder. You know, I, I look into what the. It's interesting because there is a lot of animal symbolism in, in Millennium. Oh, wow. Actually, in, in all three seasons, you know, there's sort of pigs in the first season and the episode with the judge. You know, in the second season, there's symbolism around, you know, owls and roosters and dogs and, uh, you know, and in the third season, you're right, there are, uh, you know, elements of, of, uh, of animal symbolism with the snake and the swan. And, and of course, animals always represent, can always, you know, represent different mythological beliefs or systems. So very fascinating. But, you know, you mentioned the snake, and that's tied not only to uh, Satan, you know, Lucifer, but also to the Millennium Group because of the Ouroboros, their own example. Exactly. This right. is not a good symbol. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to be good guys, you probably wouldn't want to use that as your symbol. Right. But you know <laughs> what also right. happened in that, and uh, you know, you know, excuse me, I can't remember. Um, they opened, uh, they opened Millennium pretty much with that first line, or that, that first show, with lines from William Butler Yeats. Uh, the second coming, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. That was in the pilot. Yeah, the the uh, serial killer there, the Frenchman, was using that poem. And what right. they called the the, and I can't remember. I, I want to reach the my blood, analogy. I, you said it. You said it right. I think it was the blood dimmed time. Or the red the red dimmed time. But we, but here's where I'm going with this, and I don't mean to get crazy on you. 
But what was hitting me when I was watching that Antipas is that you have the swans there, you have all the shapeshifting go on, and you have this like mystical impregnation, which uh, Yeats also wrote about in the poem um, Lita. Ah, now see, I didn't make that connection. That's interesting. Yeah, where the, I forget uh, which Greek god or whatever disguises himself as a swan and impregnates, and I can't remember who it is, and if I had my emails going, they would all tell me who that was. But <laughs> anybody can go and take a look with William Butler, uh, William Butler Yeats, uh, Leda, and the, uh, the swan that uh, embodies, if you will, um, a god that impregnates a woman. And all this impregnations going on, and also, you know, it reminded me of Rosemary's Baby and all this yep. stuff. That that was a show that was just laden with all kinds of. I'm sure Carter had a good time with this. Yeah, oh yeah, it was definitely. There's a lot of sort of what you'd consider the classic horror image in there, and there was even a uh, sort of, uh, you know, set, what you're talking about, Rosemary's Baby. You know, there was the scene where uh, Rosemary was uh, raped by the devil. There's a scene where Frank Black is basically, you know, in a yep, with, sexual with, scenario exactly. with Lucy Butler. Um, you know, and, 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 you know... So he she, got she, the reverse, where, where you had uh, Mia Farrow, obviously... Right. Um, ...being uh, impregnated by the devil, obviously a female being impregnated by a male. Now you have Frank, a male, being descended upon by an incubus or whatever. Right. Uh, and, of course, now they say they get the DNA on him, and uh, he can't figure out what the hell's going on, because he thought it was a dream. Right. Oh, right. And then he... Then he was accused of rape, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's a perfect trap. I mean, you got to hate Lucy even more. I mean, that was that. I thought that was one of the most, I don't know, uh, prominent episodes in there because of all that they packed in there. Yeah, yeah, it's a very dense episode, no doubt about it. Now, do you remember the child's name? Oh, golly, what was the child's name? Davina. Oh, okay. Now, where was that from? Uh, well, I'm wondering, I mean, if we're looking at this uh, in, in, in uh, any of the Romance languages, that must mean of the vine. Huh. And then you think of the vine. What does the vine mean? Now, you look at the vine in, in, in uh, uh, Scripture, uh, that would be a positive thing because of Christ, uh, fruit of the vine. Uh, but on the other hand, you're looking at something of a garden as well. Right. Fruit, and that gets you back to um, the temptation of, uh, of Eve. No, I, you bring up so many good points. And, you know, the thing is, when you know, sometimes when I'll, I'll write these things or talk about these things, people will say, oh, you don't really think people had that in mind when they created this, oh. do you? And I'll say, of course they did. You think it's a coincidence? People pick things out for reasons. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence. You know, Millennium, you know, a story about darkness, about evil, you know, tells us these things. So, you know, part of the fun about this show is picking up on those things. And I think you picked up on a couple real interesting points there that, I, you know, frankly, I hadn't, I hadn't thought to analyze. And now I'm going to go back and watch it again. <laughs> Well, you know, after all they did there with the shape-shifting and with the swans, mm -hmm. I mean, it just hit me in the face because, I mean, Carter obviously uh, used uh, Yates uh, as the intro to the show, and here I think we have a, a revisitation to that. And Yates himself is, is a very interesting character who claimed that uh, he, he often wrote uh, in a trance called automatic writing. So, I mean, this guy is mystical as hell. Um, I have to laugh if you'll just give me this because... Um, he always talked about being Irish. He said, uh, you know, he was talking about the Celtic twilight, and and uh, Joyce hated him, James uh, Joyce. And he said, y what are you talking about? You talking about the Celtic toilet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there was another whole thing going on. But anyway, uh, but also in, in this show, what did you make of this, if I could ask you? And that is, you know, you kind of lose um, Frank's advocates in the, in the uh, Seattle PD. 
One obviously right. is killed brutally. Another one's trying to hang on to him, you know, against all odds. But then you get, like, Baldwin involved in this, who's a little smirky little piece of crap you want to backhand. Right. And, of course, he's dealt a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, grotesque blow. Right. And then you have the other guy. Was it Fox? You know, the shaved head guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do I have that right? Is it Box? Wait, now, wait, which, what are you talking about? Not McClellan, the boss, but which one are you talking about? Well, maybe I do. I mean, uh, after Baldwin obviously just gets crispied. Right. Uh, but who's the other guy who doesn't like Frank? The shaved head guy. Oh, yeah, now, now the one who came in for, for one episode to investigate him, and he was really the shapeshifter. Is that the one you're talking about? Uh, I, I think his name is Box. I'm not sure. Okay, okay. But, I mean, it's just that what we have here is he, Frank losing his advocates. Yes, and and the reason that the, the, the Millennium series sort of had a kind of finale on the X-Files where you sort of learn the Millennium group was sort of planning to have him take his place in a sort of weird necromancy suicide kind of cult. Um, and that, you know, Frank was supposed to be one of the people involved in that. The Millennium group was grooming him for that. And so, you know, if you think that that's sort of at least one Millennium Group endgame, I've always felt that what they're trying to do in the course of the series is to both take him away from his values, which is demoralizing, but also take away the ones who love him and care for him and his friends so that he's left with nothing. You know, he, he would never, Frank would never embark, uh, you know, on a crazy thing like that because he's so grounded, it, you know, if the people in his life were with him, if Catherine were there, if he had Jordan, you know, if Fletch were there, you know, if uh, Mike Atkins, the guy who gets microwaved early on, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. you know, it, 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 surrounded by all those people, Frank isn't going to do that. So the Millennium Group sort of, it, it, you know, if you look how long they looked at Frank and said, look, we can use him in that apocalypse scenario, but we have to mold him and twist him first into the image we want him to be. You know, I see them taking away everything that matters to him you know and and you know we'll never know exactly what was in what was in those two files um you know that peter watts gave him but you know one was about jordan and so you know e either e either they were grooming jordan for something worse um or they were planning to kill jordan and you know jordan has had several brushes with death in a series there's an episode where she was called borrowed time where she almost died and she, she would get mysterious illnesses during the course of the show and you think would that be the thing that pushed Frank over the edge yep. to mm -hmm. to be that suicide if he lost jordan that would be like the linchpin that destroyed his psyche um and, and then you wonder, and you put that in the context of the last episode, he pulls her out of class, and you see them running in the hallway and driving away. You wonder if that's what it was, you know, that you know they were going to do something to her to, to, to push him along. I, I don't know. You know, it's just it's fun speculation for me. I, I, I love to think about these permutations of what was being involved because it seems like such a real universe, you know. It seems like it's such a fascinating house of cards, I guess. But that's why the show was good, even though it may may have you leave. You know, one of the things I, I can't stand, I have to tell you, when I watch movies, I, you know, we don't have to have happy endings all the time, folks. Right. So, I mean, most times in life, the bad guys win. So, I mean, you know, spare me. And, you know, I watch movies, and I know where they're going to go at the end. And I mean, I, I don't know how many movies I've watched, you know, on cable, and with 15 minutes to go, I'm like, I'm out of here. 
Because right. I mean, it's like, don't give me that crap. In this well, you know, show, I don't know, to me, it was more real life, which is probably unple- unpleasant the most, but it's still, to me, a great drama where it's like, you know what, sometimes the good guys don't win. Well, you know, for me, there was this, um, there's this great director, Nicholas Mayer, who did, um, the movie Time After Time, and he directed a couple Star Trek movies, but he, he was a really clever screener, he's still around, and a real, um, he's a great director, and he said, I was watching some commentary with him, and he said, you know, the best, you know, the movies and TV shows and things like that are, are the ones where there's, like, some gap in your information, and so you're not spoon-fed everything. You're spoon-fed enough that it tantalizes you. And then there are certain openings that they that the makers of that TV show or film don't fill in. And what do you do? You know, as the intrepid, intelligent viewer, instead of being passive, you become actively involved, and you start to fill in those blanks. And, you know, Millennium, as it went on, was leaving more and more of these bizarre blanks. I mean, as the, as the series winds its way towards its last episodes, the, the episodes were becoming more and more abstract. I mean, you know, trying to pull out the sense of an episode like Bardo Thadal, I mean, I'm saying that, right, but that's the one with the, the monks yep, and the, and the right. pottery. I mean, what is that about, you know? <laughs> or, or Saturn Dreaming of Mercury with the, the house with the eyeball collection. You know, it was becoming more and more abstract and where you're looking for connections. You know, it, it, it was... You know, some people might not like that because they might say, well, I didn't understand it, but to me, I say, I love it because what it's doing is it's, it's giving us less information and asking us to play more of an active role in trying to interpret it. Uh, you know, and it's just very interesting because what you're commenting about is that movies basically follow predictable patterns. They have a predictable three-act structure, and, you know, everything is spoon-fed to you. You, you know how it's going to turn out. You know, with Millennium, that's not the case. You know, they're, they're, they're large, you know, I, I, you know, gap, the word gaps maybe indicates that, like, you know, something was, you know, like it was a mistake that it was left out. But I don't think that. I think that it was, you know, it was, it was an artistic gap. to say, okay, you know what, we're not going to spoon feed you everything. You, you know, you're going to take this journey with us. You know, you're not just going to sit there and be a bystander and we're going to feed you, you know, uh, you know, pablum, you know, pabulum. You know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be an experience that you have to take part of. And, uh, you know, well, you, you, I think it's very interesting, that's all. No, and the thing is, oh my God, what it did was make people think. Yeah. I mean, if, if it actually made you sit in there and go and extrapolate, for whatever it meant, I mean, we, we were dealing with the work of fiction, but right. there is a lot of truisms in it. But the thing is, it made you extrapolate. It didn't give it to you all, so you can go to bed going, okay, I got it all in one nice, neat package. I, I'm right. sure a lot of Americans want that. Oh, absolutely. But I don't. <laughs> No, I, I don't either. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I happen to like, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. There you go. I love, yep. I, I, I love both The Birds and Psycho, but you know, it's interesting. Psycho gives you everything at the end. It all comes down to a psychological thing. It's a coda where a psychiatrist just talks like psycho babble for five minutes. But now contrast that with the end of The Birds, where you never find out why the birds attacked. That's right. You never figure out why they were going after these particular people, and you never figured out why they stopped. I love that. I think that's perfect. See, to me, you know, it's like, it, it's a love-hate relationship with answers. I want the answers, but I don't want them all given to me. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know if they were going to do it again. And right. Trepidation. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, I want to do a little work. You know, I, I want to be engaged when I watch these things, you know. I, and, you know, for me, that's why I, I can always go back to Millennium. Is I, I think that, um, you know, it's made that sort of compact with, uh, you know, that covenant with the audience. You know, even if you look at what's in the... Um, 
you know, the opening montages that we've discussed before, they're they're rife with symbolism. They're saying things to you like "wait, worry." You know, it's it's like all. It's just I, I don't know. It's just it's very. I think it's a very complex and um, intriguing world to get lost in. Um, even though, like you said, uh, it's not necessarily going to be a happy one. No, and excuse me while I rip this page out because the last of my, uh, of my notes. Hold on, there it is. Son. <laughs> what, what, if you don't mind, what I would ask you about, would you comment on uh, what was in Disc 5 with the show 7 and 1? Oh, okay. Did seven you hit that at all? Yes. Now, that's the one where, I mean, it's, in, it's interesting how elements of the past come in, into that episode, and then, you know, it also tells a new story, but that's the one where basically someone is pretending, I think, to be the uh, Polaroid killer again, sending pictures to think of him drowning and such like that and and we know from an earlier episode in season two that it's his that frank's one mortal fear is of drowning yes and he keeps getting like pictures yep. of him dying in the bathtub mm -hmm. so you know this episode is rife with continuity but you know what this is is that this is that previous guy the shapeshifter and you know the millennium group is tired of frank trying to uncover him so they're trying to basically make him go nuts so nobody will listen to him right now, well, I mean, you know this. I'm sure you know. It, 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 you discredit the person who's telling the truth. You right. make them. You make them look wacko, so that any time they say anything, you, you know, you can always discredit them with one word. Well, they're nuts. You know. Oh yeah, the ad hominem attack is is um, in the eyes of most of of you know the world, not only Americans. If you can, if you can uh, demonize the uh, messenger. Then you, right. can, then you can discard the message, and that's just not the way it goes. Right, right, and, I, and that's what I see this episode as being, as in push, pushing Frank to that edge. Um, now, again, what I was talking about before was, you know, was it the plan to make him, you know, go crazy so that he would partake in this plan, or was the Millennium Group at that point simply wanting to get rid of, you know, uh, the person who's saying, you know, these guys are bad? Um, but, I mean, that, you know, it, it's interesting because Millennium is a fascinating blend of the realistic and the fantastic. Yes. And that episode, we're really going into fantastic realms, like rooms flooding and, you know, sh shifters. And, you know, it, it, it's very much into that other realm. Um, you know, and, and, and the thing that makes it not stand out as being like, well, you know, that episode seems like off the normal point is, is you know, is Lance Henriksen's, you know, brilliant and you know, the way he anchors, uh, you know, he, he, you know, whatever Frank Black is fighting, he's, he's always Frank Black, you know, he, Lance Henriksen has that down, he, he's, he's got this guy, uh, and, and, you know, so even in the wildest scenarios, you don't stop and say, well, I don't believe that, you say, yeah, Frank is dealing with this, he's taking it seriously, so I'm going to take it seriously, um, and again, that's a credit to Lance Henriksen, I think, and also the writers. Uh, sure, oh no, that was, this is well written, but you know, again, we have this symbolism with uh, Emma being buried and then resurrected. Right. She is obviously, and of course this is everybody's most hideous fear, being buried alive. Mm. And here she falls into that coffin, and uh, there she is. And of course they, uh, they well, I don't want to say exhumer, but they excavate her. She was right. dead to begin with. And, you know, and then, of course, you have that episode within that that particular uh, segment right. where uh, she faces herself the doppelganger and it must be the shapeshifter but but the one Emma kills herself right I don't know what the heck to make out of that but I mean here you know, and there I, we have a, a lot of stuff laden with symbolism because again recurrent in all themes uh, whether it goes back based on a, a you know Christian scripture 
of being buried and born again, she's in the dirt, she's in the coffin, she gets brought back out again, and now she confronts what? Her other self. Right. Who she wants to stop from committing suicide, and yet there's no body left. And you, you know, do you remember that episode? Because yes, you're yes. looking at that going, okay, so where's this other Emma that shot herself because it's gone? Right. No, you know, what you're picking up on me, I think, is you know, exactly the things we're supposed to be picking up. Those last, I don't know, five or six episodes of Millennium. Oh, boy. I mean, they, they become more and more abstract and, and dense and, 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 you know, just, just, I don't want to say confusing, but just, you know, you really, you really do. You, you know, you're looking at things. You're seeing, you know, the things you don't normally see on, you know, American television, you know, blatant, you know, symbolism, you know, thing, things, you know, representing other things, and, you know, and and and, and they, they mean that, and they don't mean this, you know, and it's like, oh, trying to bear all that out is fascinating, and to me, that's why I really love the third yeah. season. I think the third season isn't as popular with a lot of fans, no, I think, of uh, some of the earlier seasons, but for me, I find it absolutely addictive because, you know, I don't know if you familiar with that show from the 60s, The Prisoner, uh, with Patrick McGowan, but also as it... I live in a neighborhood just like that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Everything is beige. (laughs) Well, you know, as as it sort of wound down to its last two or three episodes, it became stranger and stranger and stranger, you know, and it became more and more a sort of symbolic, metaphorical treatise about, you know, freedom, liberty, uh, individuality, all those things, madness even, you know, and if you look at Millennium, you know, as it was winding down, it too was, you know, becoming stranger and, you know, more bizarre and more abstract, and, you know, it always had a lot of symbolism in it, down to, you know, the structure that we talked about of the Yellow House and... Uh, you know, Frank as the shepherd or um, Catcher in the Rye, you know, and that's kind of a theme of him as the shepherd that recurs at the end of the show. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, what was my point there? But my, my, my point is just that, you know, the shows were getting odder and odder and deeper and deeper and, and, and more, sort of more opaque. Um, you know, the mysteries were becoming more opaque and harder to ferret out. And, you know, I think there'll be some people who really like that and some people who throw their hands up and give up and say, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on. But I love that show, Seven and One. I mean, I, I just think it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a great and, and sort of deep episode for all the reasons you're pointing out, um, you know, as well as the journey it takes Frank through. Well, here's what I want to throw at you also. and We're going to go over an hour. Are you okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Oh, sure, thank you. All right, it talks about seven years plus one, which is what that whole show was about, seven and one. Right. And at the end it says seven years plus one equals eight equals 1999 the last year of peace. Now, I'm just going to say this. Um, they may have meant that exactly, but I'm going to throw this one in here, and, and this may be for our fourth show if, if we want to ruminate about this. But what I thought about is if you take that 8 and apply it to 1999, we're 2007. Right. And in 2007, in the latter part of that year, we saw now some cracks in the dam of what we have con- considered always impregnable and that is the financial institutions, people losing, uh, you know, 40, 50% of their um, pensions, and right. something that's starting to look like a, uh, if you would, a um, calliope uh, starting to really run amok. Right. So I'm looking at 2007, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they meant 1999, because it all fed into the Y2K thing. Right. But in my own, you know, in, for my own purposes, I take I took a look at that math and said, well, put eight on ninety nine, and here we are, two thousand seven. 
and we've got something that none of us really know, and I'm sure you feel the same way also, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but there's a financial thing, a volcano, if you will, that they keep telling us they're putting out, but we're all kind of like, eh, I'm not so sure about that. And so, what do we call peace? Do we call peace, being, you know, no warfare? Or are we right. talking about no tumult in our lives? And no, go ahead, John. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think you're on to something in the sense that, um, you know, Frank, and he, he's, he's getting messages to say, well, we're hurtling towards an apocalypse of our own making. You know, that's, that's what this is, uh, the, you know, this economic meltdown. And, and, and I think that the examples that Millennium were giving us, I mean, they gave us an apocalypse uh, forecast for 1998. That was the flood that we were talking about before, a force majeure. It didn't happen. Right. We, we had the um, apocalypse that the Native Americans tried to spur on in 1998. You know, I, we had the Y2K disaster that didn't really happen. You know, I think what Millennium is saying is that, you know, the end of the world can be any time. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it can. It, it, it can be 2007, you know, and it's not going to come where we expect it to be. I mean, and that's one of the things that Frank said, I think, in that episode of Single Blade of, Gla- of Grass, you know, where he said he, he, the, the prophecy of Buffalo would return to the, you know, domain where, you know, white man had, you know, destroyed the Indian. And they did, but they were followed by clowns. And, you know, so the clowns were sort of signifying that that prophecy was foolish. And Frank said, you know, I wonder if the things we believe going to happen in the way they think we are. I mean, the way we think they will, you know, or, or that it'll happen to us in a different way. And I mean, what you're, what you're seeing, what, what you're talking about is, for your own frame of reference, I, th- I think you have fairly unconventional thinking. You, you don't come at things straight up. You come at things from a different angle, and I yeah, like that. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's so, <laughs> but that helps you see something. That is a compliment. That, that helps you, that gives you an insight into things, and that's also what Millennium is about, how people come at things from different angles, and those angles give them insight into things, and so what your insight is, is you're seeing something that, like, other people didn't see, you know, or don't see, is that, you know, this could be that thing, you know, I mean, you know, if you went back to, you know, Revelation and all this stuff, and, you know, talks of the end of the, you know, prophecies about the end of the world, don't they talk about the Holy Roman Empire, you know, and, you, you know, stuff like that, and, you know, we, I mean, you so what is the Holy Roman Empire now? I mean, is that the is that the bank, the banking institutions? Though I mean, it could be, it could be. It's an unconventional way of looking at it. But why do we always expect that the end of the world is going to be with a blast instead of whimper? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. You know, this, this starts out like a whimper. It's like almost you don't. You know, I mean, it's just like companies falling. But then it's like dominoes, and then more companies fall, and then you know more money is spent. You know, then where does it end? You know, we we don't know. You know, wait, worry, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know that always freaked me out. I said, who cares? And now because, and then of course in our third season it was the time is near, and right. I think they really hammered that. And I, that I thought was a little uh, chintzy, going after the uh, the change of the millennium. But you know, uh, Carter, uh, he, he's too clever. He's too plugged in. That there is a lot that's going there, and he gave up some things. I thought for those who just want to be on the, on the uh, surface, and there's other right. things there for those who want to go in and find it. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I, John. Go. No, no, I, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep interrupting you, but you're, you're saying so many interesting things. My mind is just bursting with the ideas here. You know, I think you're, I think you're, you're right again. You know, I think that the, the ploy then at that point was because millennials was low rated was that you know it could at least seize on what was coming up. You know, that that was the news, all that subject. So let, you know, let's really focus on that. What what bothers me, I think, oh my gosh, could you imagine if Millennium had stayed on the air? 
after that, I mean, it would have been great if it got a four season and we got past all that, because then it could have gone back to ruminating about these other things. I mean, you know, the millennium didn't happen when, you know, the, the end of the world didn't happen when they expected it. You know, if millennium was on now, don't you think they would be doing an episode, you know, about, you know, about economics, you know, you know, sure. you know, about banking and, you know, the millennium group with its hands in finance across the globe, you know, it would have been great if it had passed that sort of, um, that marketing push, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's almost 2000, let's, you know, let's tie this in. You know, it would have been great if it had moved past, you know, if it had stayed on long enough that it could have gone on to tell these stories, because really, as it tells us over its three years, the millennium, you know, the end of the world, it didn't have to be 2000, it could be 1998, it could be 1999, it could be 2007, just like you said, you know, maybe it's 2009, you know, we don't, we don't know. Well, the, uh, the nexus of um, Carter, um, Fox and Rupert Murdoch, um, you know, should not be overlooked. And for what I mean, because Murdoch is, is is a one worlder. I mean, he's a universe, uh, what we oh, internationalist. I guess who we call like the Rockefellers. And, and of course, he has a point too. And there's something going on also with newspapers and such, which we will talk about now, about the consolidation of uh, information, which just means propaganda. It'll come out of fewer uh, outlets as it used to. That's right. another thing. But um, looking at, uh, you remember uh, the disc six? Good. In fact, actually, it's the last show. Goodbye to yeah. all that. Goodbye to all that. Yep. Goodbye to all that. Well, Goodbye let me throw that. this by you because I mean, what he hits upon goes back to, and I'm sure I'm going to hit some nerves. And I want folks. I mean, I've not talked about John's website or anything like that or his blog because we've done that before, and that will always accompany the uh, the audio. So you know, we don't have to do that anymore. But it'll always be there, and so, and you know, and understand, John. I mean, we've done this now, uh, like two tsunamis. You can get the waves a lot later after. <laughs> um, but it, it talks about things that goes back to the Templars. It goes back to John Dees. It goes back to Merlin. I mean, now they get really, really interesting. And what I'm saying is, is that there's an exchange where I think where Frank says, uh, "It's the age-old alchemical dream." Not the transformation of metal, if, if I've got that right, he said, but, the tra but this transcends ourselves. Right. I don't know. I know this is a little cryptic, but do you remember that exchange or at least what Frank is saying in that episode? Yes, yes, I do. And, you know, m m Millennium, you know, what I, what I, I groove on so strongly about is, is, you know, how didactic it is, you know, how it's about us. It's, it's not about serial killers. It's about you know, our reaction to serial killers. It's, it's, it's not about the real end of the world. It's how we imagine the end of the world. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's, a, it's about humanity and us. You know, I, I wonder if what he's referring to there is some sort of, you know, chemical, genetic predisposition to, and this is weird, and you'll have to forgive me. Go, the, go, go, the, go. To, to, to desire the end. I mean, do we, is you know is it some sort of self destructive impulse in us? Why are we always focusing on that? I mean, why do we do things that bring us closer to the end? You know why? You know it's it, 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 it's very interesting. I think and and is it because you know what we're questing for is the spiritual and the, in some sense we know that yeah. as long as we're material. <laughs> we, you know, we're not going to be able to experience the spiritual. The problem is we might not experience the spiritual either. Listen, I'm an atheist, you know, so I want to give up the material. But, you know, is there some sort of self-destructive impulse in the human animal that desires uh, the end? 
Um, and you know, we're talking about you know that alchemical transformation and the spirit. I mean, there was, there were, there are episodes in there about transubstantiation and and other things. And you know, it's it, it's a very uh, it's not a religious show, but it is a spiritual show. Oh, no, you can't escape it. I mean, we're talking about metaphysics. It, 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 that's a better word to use, right? And and, and that if, that impacts everybody, regardless of what you know strain you come through with with regard to your spiritual life. Uh, but I mean, I've heard this before too, um, saying maybe maybe Merlin and all those who were dealing with alchemy weren't really like trying to transmute other um, metals into gold, but it was about something that was more um, metaphysical, like one's soul. Right. And that's why you know in in that show it says it transcends ourselves. But this would also harken back to what um, what you would call Gnosticism, and that is to be as God, which of course in the Christian ethos would be, whoa, that's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. You know what I mean? Right, so you're right. dealing with a very heavy, very heavy um, element here, no matter how you come down on it, but I mean, nobody is without an opinion about right. that particular uh, element. No, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, and if you look at some of the episodes in Millennium's third season, they are about, um, you know, I want to the Prometheus metaphor about the person who's grasping for greater knowledge to reach some sort of godlike um, level, there's yeah. that mm-hmm. there's yeah godlike state exactly. There's that episode, and again the, the titles are hard to pronounce. Matryoshka, um, but that's yep. about like some that's guy right. who tries to you know he's he's out in Nevada on a base and he's trying to develop the uh, nuclear bomb, but he like creates another doppelganger. You know, doc, doppelgangers keep repeating on the series too. But you know he creates he, he creates another version of himself. He plays God, you know, and then his daughter is doing it a generation later. Um, so you know, I think that is that element is there. Yes. Um, you, you know that that Prometheus element of mankind groping to become, you know, the divine to to harness all the powers of nature and the universe. But you know, maybe what Millennium is saying, maybe it's a race. You know, maybe you know, are, are we going to you know develop you know these godlike ways and abilities and knowledge, or are we going to destroy ourselves? You know, which comes first? You know. You know, or or is or is the end of the world a symptom of trying to play God? I, you know, I don't know, but again, it's a you know very fascinating you know. But subtext. that's what the series left you with, and right. that's why I think in the end, despite the fact that I've seen it three times, and I have to admit it was it was tough slogging at the end. But that's why I think the show was so well. It didn't spoon feed you everything. You go, okay, this is what you're supposed to think. Blah 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 blah. You know what I mean? It just said it just left you open ended, and people are there on the abyss going, "Oh, I have to figure this out." Yeah, folks, you might have to, but you know what? Is that bad? <laughs> right. No, I mean that. You know that's that's the thing that I I long for and hope for. You know, in my work, um, you know, I, I'm you know I'm stimulated and tantalized by films that you know lead me lead me somewhere, but then let me take the last step myself. Um, you know, and, and and I feel like that's what Millennium does. Is it, is it, it you know, it, it debates all the important things about who we are as human beings, but lets us, you know, in some sense, draw the conclusions. Um, I mean, they they, they 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 you know they provide examples, you know, maybe evidence, but it, it's not like they're telling us one thing or another. They're 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 you know they're they're letting us take that last step. Um, you know, and I think that's something to be cherished. I mean, I don't know that too yeah, many shows are doing that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Please let me uh, decide for myself. Please give me an option to think. Right. If, 
Okay, John. No, no, you, I was just laughing. I said, that's right, please give me the option to think. That's right, that, that should be a bumper stuff in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, please, can I think? And they did that. Uh, I mean, Carter, uh, you know, I, I kind of don't see him as a really um, benign individual, but they gave us this uh, dramatic uh, three years, and I, I'm going to talk to you later about what you might, you know, what you know about whether or not this was supposed to be year by year by year or whatever. Um, but there's another thing that happened in this also, which I thought was unsettling, because this is part, if you will, of what the Manchurian candidate uh, broached, you know, back in the original movie, back in, like, mm -hmm. what, 1960. Right. And the, the, the key phrases, and, you know, what bothered me is when um, Jordan started saying, we are all shepherds. Man, that just oh, creeped I me. Right, right. And how'd you take that? Did you feel, I mean, you know, not that I'm right, but it's like, she said it a couple of times, and I'm like, oh, wait, this sounds like one of those, like, you know, little switch-on, switch-off things. Right. Uh, what, what's your take on that, John? So that's, that is so interesting. Of course, I have a long-winded answer, because I've been very long-winded today, and I'm sorry. <laughs> but well, you keep being long-winded, because, I mean, this is good stuff. It, it's that I totally felt that during the second season. Like, whenever... Whenever the Millennium Group would meet each other, they'd say, this is who we are, this is who we are. And my wife would look at me and say, who talks like that? Who said, I would not be part of, I would not go near any people who, whenever they meet, say, this is who we are. <laughs> you know, all the time. Like, it's a secret handshake or something. You know, that's creepy. It's creepy. And it's like what you're saying. It's like a message coming on and off. You know, I didn't take, I don't think I took Jordan's that way, simply because I think, you know, again, my interpretation of it is that, you know, Jordan has some sort of, extra normal senses. And I feel like that, that hers tend more towards the benign than some. Um, and, and I feel like maybe that's the message that somebody is repeating to her, but I didn't feel that it was necessarily from a bad source. I could see okay. how, I could okay. certainly see how you interpret it that way. I mean, I think it's a valid interpretation. I guess I just saw, you know, I, I, see, <laughs> I see Jordan as a very positive, you know, character, so I, I don't think they would be putting... I hope they wouldn't, you know, God forbid, you know, <laughs> to put in this, you know, something terrible in her mouth, you know, to pass on. Well, my, uh, my only take was, okay, and, and this is just my take, but I, I'm like Frank, right? I'm dropping her off to school. Now, she said this a couple of times, and she says that we're all shepherds, and I, I, I'm like, if I'm Frank, I'm thinking, Jordan, uh, we'll talk later. <laughs> yeah, you've been programmed. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, but go to school. Don't worry about it. But let's talk later, and that's the way I felt about it. And also, there is that movie out now, and it's been out for some time, about uh, the CIA doings called The Good Shepherd. Well, you're right. That's an interesting connection. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, like I said, I think your interpretation is valid. You know, I'm I am the eternal optimist, so I may just be resisting it. <laughs> Please be that way. We have to have somebody like that, honest to God. Um, but we, now, let me ask you this: Do you remember the movie The Graduate? Oh yes. Do you remember, what was the most liberating scene? I know I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot, and folks, we do not rehearse this stuff, which is why this is good radio and other stuff sucks. Um, if you remember The Graduate, was there a liberating scene in there? Which is kind of like stating the obvious, but... Well, you know, for, for me, it was it was at the, at the wedding when um, yeah. that Hoffman was at the window, and he, and he took the bride-to-be away from... You know, it was very symbolic. He took her away from the... And she didn't want to really marry. That was the choice of her parents. He he, he, he broke into a sort of sacred, uh, you know, institution. Ceremony, and it, yeah. Yeah, ceremony. And, you know, so it was shattering all of these conventions, you know, to, to do that. So it was very liberating because it was unshackling 
these two young people from society. But, see, ha, huh, now here's the thing. I watched the graduate recently. One of the very next shots of them, though, they're sitting in the bus. The bus in the back of the bus? They're sitting in the back of the bus, and they're like, they're, you see them through the windows, and they're like trapped in their own little boxes. And you think, oh, they, they think they're being unconventional and breaking to down, you know, uh, you know, breaking down society, but they're really, they're really going to fall into the and trap. another one. <laughs> well, I, you know, you're absolutely right. But the thing that I that I got, uh, which I, you know, took some kind of, uh, I guess, optimism out of um, the last show, right. was he went in and he grabbed Jordan out of school and they bolted yep. out of there. Yep. All right. Well, well, maybe I'm reaching with the whole thing about the graduate, but to me it was like. We're, we're out of this freaking institution. We don't know what's going to happen to us, but man, whatever it is, it ain't going to happen here. I totally agree with you. I think it's an optimistic shot too. That's why I want to, you know, said earlier. I don't think it's, I don't think it's unheroic that he runs, that he takes, and then he flees. I think there, there, there's a point where you have to sort of double down and say, I cannot be part of this system right now. I am, you know. I want to fight the system because I think it's wrong, but I can't keep fighting because I'll lose even more than I've lost now. I'm not willing to do that. Um, you know, and he takes Jordan and he runs, and I think it's optimistic because at the end of that shot, what do we see? What do we see in the distance? Isn't there a rainbow? Yeah, and, and they're running, and I mean, it's just a free, it's a freeing type of thing. It is. It is. It's. I mean, it is. It's goodbye to all this. It's saying, you know, it's, it, it's a yeah. focusing on, you know, this. This is what's important to me. This little girl. But then they drive off in his red, whatever it is, floor or whatever, and uh, an SUV. Yeah. An SUV. And 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 isn't am I wrong? But wasn't there a rainbow in that shot? Oh boy, I I do not remember that. Uh, you know, I, I again, it might be eternal optimism, but I thought they were sort of like in the distance, a sort of. Uh, rainbow kind of effect. And I thought, see, look, see, it, it is an optimistic ending because they're driving towards that. You know, you're driving towards the f the future, and the future the future can be what we make it. And you know, it might be the end of the world, but it might be a rainbow. Is that sappy? I can't help it. I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, it might be sappy, but I mean, it's also very effective. I think. And yeah. what I like was the fact that you know when you get this shot of them um, down the hall from I guess the classroom from which they uh, exited. Yeah. You get a little silhouette effect, but you see their arms and legs, and you yep. see them just, you know, obviously working, running through the uh, the hall, while the teacher says, you can't do that, and I'm like, right. you know, F and A, I can do that. You know what I'm saying? Right. This is my kid, and that's what I love. It's like, take your public school system and shove it up your rectum, <laughs> and they're out of here, and if it did go into the, to the rainbow, if that were the case, that's fine, but the fact that they bolted reminded me, you know, obviously of... The freedom Dragon. of Dustin Hoffman and uh, Catherine Ross bolting out of the uh, the church uh, and saying, "Nah, I don't want to do this." And like you said, you know, they wind up on a bus, and is that is that really an escape? And uh, we don't know. Right. But also with um, Frank and Jordan bolting out of the school, we don't know what's going to happen to them. We all no. obviously wish the best, but because of the way the Millennium series was, and because of the way life is. I mean, John, it's like we really don't know what's going to happen to him. No, I, I totally agree with you. And you know, the more I think, the more your analogy is really appropriate. And if you, you know, extrapolate, you know, symbolically what it means, I mean, it is. It, it's not just him saying, you know, f you to the school system. It's to, to, you know, to American society. You know, to the to the culture that has, yeah. uh, you know, allowed this to happen. That where this group operates and does these dastardly things, and you know. Uh, you know, it's a very effective way to end the series. It doesn't answer questions 
but I do think it, 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 it does you, it does give you an adrenaline rush and the feeling that, you know, it, it might not be that we'll win, but, you know, sometimes you, you, you can, you can have your little moment of victory. Do you know what I'm saying? You can, sure. you know, sometimes that's, you know, that's what life comes down to, those moments of, uh, of victory where you are able to sort of, you know, grab the hand of the person you love and say, let's get out of here. You know, we, we have, there's still enough freedom that you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that's not nothing because there are some places in the world where you can't do that. Um, you know, and it, it, it's a very, I, I think it's a very beautiful ending to the series. And I think your analogy is actually really good um, because there's a thrill. You're right, you know, the teacher yelling at him, but he's taken her. And you're right, they're silhouetted. Um, and it's just something wonderful about that image of the father yeah, and the is. child together. Um yeah, heading off to New Horizons. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And it's like you know, Frank is always the consummate gentleman, so you didn't tell him to kiss my ass. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. I'll see you later. And off they go. And of course, they could walk. They could have done anything but to run and to be in silhouette. I mean, obviously, it has a dramatic effect. It's a little bit uh, abstract. And of course, running and of course with their with their limbs flailing. Um, right. Yeah, I think we all left it a little bit uplifted. Yes, exactly, exactly, and and it's amazing, you know, the Millennium, it has a lot of those sort of transcendent moments, and it's nice that it went out on that, you know, because it could have, it could have gone out on total darkness, yep. um, but it didn't, it didn't. And, I, yeah, you know, and I, I agree, it, it, it did lead, I mean, if that show did anything, it left you in a constant state of ambivalence, which right. isn't bad, if you, if you really, want, you know, they always talk about works of fiction, uh, keeping tension and stuff, and that's like, a, 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 um, I guess, a, um, a signature of good fiction. And that show did exactly that, and yet, you know, with, with the public, they just want happy endings, and they want everything to be Roseanne. Right. You know, and it's like, no, guys, this is really the good stuff. Um, and let me ask you this. I mean, would you agree? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised we even talked about this, because usually with what you address in your genre, is not something like this, and we may... Obviously, we've talked about this. We may catapult into other things. But you, you chose this also. You wanted to take a bite out of this. What was so attractive about it, John? Because, you know, obviously it isn't as fantasy-oriented as, you know, really like, you know, slasher or, or Wes Craven uh, right. fiction. What was it about this that um, grabbed you? You know, it, it, it's a complex question, you know. I'm sure part of it just, you know, has something to do with the way my brain works. But That's scary. Yeah, I know, right? Right. Um, I, I, I find it. It, it, it it's like a puzzle. It, it, it challenges me. It's, a, it's like a puzzle. It's a, it's a puzzle that's three fourths put together, and it's just waiting for me to put in that last fourth. And you know, I can watch it again and again, and I imagine I'll revisit it again in the future because I really like it. And, you know, I'm putting together that final fourth of the, of the puzzle. Yep. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and I'll be honest, you know, the first time I saw it, I wasn't a father. And, um, you know, this is the first time I've watched it since I'm being a father. And I, and I, I see, I, 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 I see and I feel a whole new thing, different things than I felt when I watched it when I was 29 as opposed to 39, um, and and having a child in my life, you know, it's uh, the 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 images are, are are sort of inescapable and and palpable. Some of the things about children and and parents and 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 the world. I mean, it it, it tied up so much, and you know, the things we hope for our children and the things we fear for our children. Yeah. Um, 
and, and the things we fear and and hope for as as parents. I mean, but not not just that. I'm just saying that you know you don't have to be a parent or anything to enjoy it or to get there to feel those things. I'm just saying I feel those things more palpably now that I've gone through that experience. You know, it, it spoke to me when I was you know 29, but just a different way. Um, you know, I, I so you know there's just something about. It. I think the thing that I like about it the most is. I, I, you know, I, you know, it gives us, you know, who I, someone who I think is a great, you know, almost literary tragic hero um, in Frank Black, and and it surrounds him in a world that is um, difficult and and painful and and hard and um, and puzzling, and, and and we we get to walk through it with him, and you know, I don't always want to walk through it with him, but there are times that I do because I feel like. Coming out of that, you know, I feel like it's that image of the the father's hand with the the child's hand. Seeing a third season grasping them, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, you're 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 coming through the rain, you're coming through the dark, coming out the other end of the tunnel, and that there is some transcendence there. I feel there's a transcendent quality to Millennium that I really really like, and it moves me on some deep level, I guess. I would say on several levels. Let me ask you this: um, on a scale from uh, zero to ten, with regard to um, uh, how should I couch this? Um, legitimate and thoughtful drama for a series. Uh, would you give a figure on that? Well, you know, for me, I give it. You know, I would give it an absolute ten on a scale of one to ten. And okay. I, I, you know, I, I just have to feel. You know, a lot of what people think is legitimate drama, you know, society is all backwards the way they see legitimate drama. I mean, Law and Order or CSI are fine, but, but every week it's the same thing over and over again, and they catch the criminal, and they, they do this, and there's, there's certain, you know, and, and, but people rave about these, you know, these 10 o'clock dramas. Well, that's not drama. That's, I don't know what it is. You know, Millennium with the questions and the, and you know the the darkness and the um, you know the probing and, and and the mystery. I mean that's that's drama. <laughs> you know, and our society is all backwards and messed up. That they that people look at Millennium and say, oh, it, you know, they're what it's like about a psychic, right? You know, and so they just they discredit it. You know, it's like, oh, that's not real drama. You know, that's like kid stuff or something. You know, I mean, it's all backwards. That's one of the things that always gets. Our society has such backwards values as far as entertainment. You know, Millennium is the best of the best, I think. Well, yeah. What did uh, Billy Preston say when the bad guy wins once in a while? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I can't watch that formula stuff, neither can you. And this show, obviously, did not necessarily let you walk away feeling really good, you know, like Captain Kangaroo. But, I mean, you know, it moved you. Right. And that's important. And if you had, I mean... You know, my wife and myself talked about this. If it leaves you with some things to kick around, I mean, isn't I mean, isn't that what it's all about? It's, I mean, it was engaging drama, mm-hmm. and we, but with enough of a step in um, or a foot in reality that we couldn't just dismiss this. And that's another big thing. And that is, this is a, a little insight into like maybe the underside of life, and it's real. I mean, a CSI and all that stuff—they play it as real. But, you know, you kind of like say, okay, yeah, but we know that's fiction. But what they right. do with Millennium, I think, uh, brought it much closer to home. And that gets a little uncomfortable to a lot of people. Oh, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think there's some people who don't want that journey. There's some people who just want to turn, they turn the TV off 
I mean, they turn the TV on and they turn their brains off. Um, I mean, that's that's what they do. Um, you know, that's what they that that's what they've been conditioned to do. To me, that's frightening. That could be a millennium episode. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I wanna, um, you know, if something isn't going to engage me or make me think, um, you know, I don't I don't really want to watch it. And and you know, there are, there are questions throughout history, through all of history, about why do things happen the way they do? Who is the mover? behind the way things are. Um, you know, Millennium, you know, distilled to its pure essence is about that. It's about a group that's moving history in one direction or another. And people can say that's nuts, but it's really not. I mean, it doesn't have to be a secret cabal. It could be the Catholic Church, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, it, it's about any group that has reach within power and wants to push history in one direction or another. I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing crazy about that, you know. Um, you know, it's it's so easy to look at something with a conspiracy and say, you know, it's insane, but it's not. No, I mean, it's, it's what the history of the world is, is, right. is that groups pushing us one way or the other. And, and, and usually what the, I mean, it's a small group of people pushing a large group of people, right? Okay. <laughs> you yeah, know? You're right, there's no doubt about it. Right, right. Um, so. uh, let me just say this because I don't, I don't want to get like uh, didactic about all this stuff. But you mentioned something, and I, I wish if people were interested that they would look at themselves because this was an absolutely provocative period of time uh, in our history. Uh, you remember when you talked about the buffalo coming back with the Indians and all that? Right. All right. Um, you know, please excuse me, but I mean, I would just say for folks, I mean, I've, I've gone this way, and I think everybody should take a look at this. One of the most ironic episodes between the Aboriginal people, the Native Americans, obviously, and uh, we Anglos, Western Europeans, took place on the plains of the Dakotas, and um, it was not a, a very happy episode. Uh, where, where I'm driving this at is that this is so interesting, and that is there was a, uh, a Paiute Indian that went by the name of Waboka, up Nevada, who had visions and had some understanding of the Revelation episode, if you will, in the Bible, uh, and kind of spun it a different way. And you have to dig this, John. I mean, you have the heads of the Sioux nations on a train. That this is where we're at. You know, this, this, this. Uh, uh, I, I guess meshing of the old world and the new world. You know what I mean? Right, right. Which, which is what Butch Cassidy did. Uh, remember Butch on the bicycle? Right, right. Okay, the old day is over, the new day has come. And we even see that also in the, uh, I guess, the, uh, what was it, the Great Northfield Minnesota Raid? Do you remember that movie at all? Oh, gosh. Well, um, well, that's where Jesse James, that's where they try to rob two banks at one time. Okay, okay. And somebody gotcha. falls on the Calliope which actually sounds an alarm throughout the town. In other words, it's, it is technology mitigating against the old bandits, you know, the okay. way things used to be. Okay, now let me go back. Um, the whole bit about Movoka um, um, was this. The two chiefs went out, and Movoka gave them a kind of like uh, Scottish type of uh, rendering of what was going to happen, and he told them that the white man, you know, there would be a, uh, a tribulation, and the white man would be eaten up, and they would go away, and the Indians would have the buffalo back, and this is where I'm going to go with this. And everything would be okay. And they went back with that knowledge, and of course what happened actually was it begat the massacre at Wounded Knee. 
um, and just a miserable situation. But it was all based on a, a very faulty understanding of, you know, this kind of like, you know, pigeon uh, amalgamation of Indian lore and, you know, biblical scripture. And it ended up in that very nasty situation. And, uh, you know, it was all with all good intentions. And it went so horribly bad. And if anybody wants to look at that, um, you know, the author's name is Utley. There's some other people also that talk about that episode that wound up, um, obviously, in a very bad situation um, with um, what would be called a massacre of wounded knee. Anyway, so what, what, what you brought up about that episode is so rich in American lore and obviously so tragic. And there's been other movies that have, been, have done something about that. But, you know, and I'm sorry to, you know, to, to lay it on you, John, but I mean, no, no. You, know, you mentioned it. I mean, people should really take a look about what took place uh, in that time with uh, the Indians or you know, the Native Americans believing uh, from a skewed knowledge of Scripture that, yes, there would be a, uh, a tribulation and a, restore, a restoration of everything for them. And boy, did that turn out wrong. Well, you know, it, that's uh, very interesting in regards to Millennium 2 because I think one theme that we haven't really talked about but which yeah. I think is there is that idea of there are all these people who prophesy the end of the world, but the, the problem is always us. It's how do we interpret those? Pro- like, the person who has the prophecy still interpreting the prophecy. So how, how does it actually come about to play? And I, and I, I think Millennium you know, teases us a lot with that, with that idea of this is the prophecy for, for the end of the world, but it's, it's always sort of not how we expect it to be because it's always through the interpretation of one person or another person or one book or one writer or one poet or, mm-hmm. you know, a shaman or whatever. Um, you know, so I, th- I think, you know, that's like a real-life incident of that where somebody had a, had a belief, but that belief, you know, not to say his prophecy he didn't have that that vision, but maybe he interpreted it wrong. That's Do you know right. what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, is that everybody had the best of intentions. And as you read the narratives, like I said, written by Utley and others, uh, you realize, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, they're coming back with bad information. And you realize it's like setting a fuse to a dynamite, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and what everybody feared. Uh, in fact, occurred, and I don't lay that on Wovoka by any means. I think he was <laughs> trying to be very, very truthful. But can you imagine, John? It was such a weird time where you actually had uh, tribal heads from the from the Sioux nations and others uh, go on a train out to mm. talk to him in California. <laughs> now, what what an image, right? I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, it's absolutely. I mean, it's like it's like a, a paradox. That you can believe that this was going on, but that was that very strange time at the end of, uh, nearing the end of the uh, 19th century, that this was going on. And I just would ask people, and I'm only saying this because of this, that if you would read some of these books with regard to that time, uh, boy, you know, it, it's tragic. I'm sorry. You know, again, we don't have a good ending, but um, it gives you an insight as to why everybody did what they did, and that I think gives us a better idea of. Uh, yeah. If nothing else, John, uh, good guys and bad guys, and I don't think Anglos come out too well in that deal. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, another point of what you're saying, which I think Millennium is very much about, and what our society is about today is that the future and the past are always colliding. That's right. 
you know, that our futures and our past are always colliding, and it's usually not in a pleasant way. You know, the, the future devours the past, and, and sometimes when we least expect it, the past will come back and consume the future. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an uneasy relationship, I but think. But isn't that embodied by the whole idea of the symbol of the snake eating its own tail? Absolutely, the Ouroboros, the the cycle, the the cyclical nature of life that you know that has happened before and it will happen again. I mean, I think that's very you know specific to Millennium. Yep. Another concept that it trades explicitly in is this idea of of, that, of the snake eating its own head, of the the future eating the past, and the past eating the future, and on on this goes. Um, very interesting stuff. All right, we've been with uh, John Kenneth Muir, and uh, folks, I mean, you've been with us for a while, too, and this is the last series that I'm doing, um, in, you know, in the body of uh, Beyond the Grassy Knoll. Um, but uh, uh, everything up there um, with the audio, uh, his website, his blog spot is there. You already know it. We'll be back for a fourth episode. So, John, thanks a lot for coming back, and if you can take the punishment, we'll do it one more time. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Just charge in here and take her. Mr. Black. I've seen the future, where the battle between good and evil that has raged for millennia has fought to conclusion, and the struggle for our hearts and minds is decided for all time. We survive, maybe, but only by discarding the question that confuses us, what do I want, and asking what the world, what the universe wants and needs. Asking what does life itself expect of me. Which side wins, Daddy? That's what I'm saying. It's up to us. We are all shepherds. Yes, honey. Yes, we are.